Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the Biodiversity Podcast by Teasels. And in episode three, I am talking with uh, John Little of the Grass Roof Company. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hello. 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 Hi. Good stuff. John, so um, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction uh, to yourself and yeah, a bit of an introduction to yourself, what you do within our industry? Um, and uh, yeah, what you've been working on recently? Uh, yeah, I suppose uh, I've uh, I've always uh, messed around with plants um, from a very young age, uh, and then uh, after dabbling in retail for a while, I fell into uh, doing what I'm doing now uh, about 23 years ago, I guess. Um, and um, I suppose I'd always been interested in the wild side of things and, and certainly been fiddling around with wild plants early on. Uh, and uh, in 95, we were lucky enough to build our own green roof house. Very lucky to be able to do that. And that started off a whole process of thinking, well, what, you know, why, why, is there, why, why don't people put plants on roofs? Why is there not more green roofs? Because there wasn't very many at that time. Hmm. Um, and, and then, so, so the plant thing sort of evolved into an into a infrastructure thing, really, and, and, and how you can use plants within buildings and, and in, 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 in urban areas. Um, so, and then I blundered around doing, you know, laying lawns and, and faffing around in, in domestic gardens. And then uh, eventually, um, a teacher, teacher friend of mine asked me to do some work in a school. And that was a kind of tipping point, really, because then we were able to try all the sustainable stuff, all the brownfieldy stuff, all the kind of green, you know, we were able to try what we wanted. We weren't restricted by a domestic garden. Um, so that was a big, that was a big difference for us. And that was really good. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, that, that, that was great. And then, and then of course, as time's gone on and we've kept building green roof buildings and we've kept pushing the biodiversity side, which gradually become more fashionable, I guess. So life's got, life's got slightly easier as time's gone on. And um, certainly at the moment, in the last couple of years, especially, um, the work we've been doing with uh, talking about soils and substrates and, and uh, all the potential of designing with uh, soils and construction waste in a, in a you know, mimicking brownfield and mimicking open mosaic habitat. That's, there's a lot of interest now, the last, especially the last year. Um, which is great. And, and I think that whole area really opens up landscaping into a whole new world. As soon as you dump the topsoil, things really get lively. So that's kind of, that's my, that's, that's certainly good. And, in, and obviously in between all that, we've looked after a social housing estate in Hackney for 18 years, um, which again was another amazing opportunity and uh, a really beautiful thing to do um, and, and a privilege to do. So yeah, it's a mixed bag of all that, but it's all, it's all been in and around plants and slightly more, you know, slightly more natural um, landscaping, I guess. Excellent. So let's, so you mentioned brownfield, you mentioned topsoils. Let's, let's dive into that actually in the first instance, because, um, you know, we've talked on this, about this on many occasions. So for people, for the uninitiated, when you say, a brownfield landscape, you know, for, for landscape architects out there, for developers out there, what, what, does, what does that mean to them? So if you give a bit of a description. Yeah, well, I guess, to be fair, a brownfield landscape is a very, it's an incredibly general term. I mean, 
Bramfield is I was I was associated with an abandoned and you know a, a site that's been occupied or used by us in some way. It may well be an industrial site or it could well be an you know uh, an old quarry. Um, they're basically where we've just gone in, done some stuff, and then left it alone. And I think what makes it so good um, is is the variety, isn't it? That's so us our process of building stuff, stuff falling down. Um, going into disrepair, you know, we're leaving piles of rubble with, you know, all these processes of, of in fact, the man-made sort of processes create, once you leave it alone, create an incredibly diverse um, plant communities and topography and soil types and structures. So, and, and that is what creates diverse wildlife, as we, as we kind of all know. You know. So um, it's interesting. So, so it's quite interesting as well. So you you uh, you talk about mentioning there about topography and how if you're altering the topography, both building up and recessing the ground, how just that small sort of nuance in topography, how that can specifically can have a massive effect on again flora and fauna as well. Yeah, yeah, because what all the topography is doing is it's giving you, you know, if you if, you, if Essentially, if you've got a landscape that you put the same soil everywhere and you rake it flat, you're going to basically the vegetation is going to want to be the same throughout the whole of that landscape, isn't it? It's going to want to default to that. Now you can garden it and try and stop it from doing that, which is what gardening is in effect, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, we put topsoil everywhere and then we try and grow plants that couldn't compete against the plants that like topsoil. So gardening is a process of, of stopping um, succession, really. Um, but if you can start to dictate the soils and the topography, then you can, you can actually say, right, I want this part of my landscape to, to be relatively low vegetation. I want it to be relatively sparse. And I know the plants that really like that sort of uh, habitat, and I'm gonna give them the soil and the aspect that they like. And therefore, I don't have to garden it quite so much, do I? Because it's actually wanting to be that thing. Whereas if you are kind of, stuck with fertile topsoil um you're you're always going to be fighting against what it wants to be which in effect is going to be coarse grass and competitive weeds and then bramble and then scrub and then trees so um by altering the uh, substrates and choosing your substrates you're kind of working with the plants and you're giving the plants what they want and i think it's a bit like the chateau thing you know right plant right place and i think mm -hmm. we need to think about right soil, right plant, you know, I mean, it needs to, it, 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 and the opportunities then for design, to design with that. So you can then dictate what your plants do. You can dictate what your plants do, what plants are gonna be happy there. And you can also dictate where plants aren't gonna be happy and where they're not gonna grow. So therefore you can dictate your spaces in the landscape. Mm. And it's often the space between plants, isn't it? That makes the landscape really work. Mm. Um, and then once we started, I mean, this all came off the back of a, a we built a big three car garage for a customer and uh, uh, we planted it up and uh, we went back after a few years, like we often do, to see how things were going. And she'd had a, a granite fines driveway leading up to this garage that, that butted to the garage. And when we came back, see, she wasn't a gardener at all, um, but all the, the, the green roof plants that were on the roof had all seeded down off the roof into the granite driveway. Mm. And this was the most amazing landscape. 
And that was a kind of another, another slightly light bulb moment when I thought, well, hang on, the driveway is way more interesting than the, than the flower board. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And, as soon as, and it was that kind of flip on your head, you know, the paths were more interested than the borders. And, uh, um, and, and also they were not only more interesting, but she hadn't done anything to them either. She hadn't gardened them. So the, the maintenance obviously was reduced as well. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the kind of key thing. And then once you start dabbling around in what materials you can grow plants in, it's, it's endless. You know, I mean, we have about, we must have about 15 different materials here, including nearly every sort of construction waste material um, and, and loads of local sands and building sands and lots of other crushed uh, waste materials. So, uh, and, and once you start putting that down and seeing what grows, and, and, and it, it's really fascinating. And, and, and that's, that's, only from, um, that's only from a plant perspective. Um, I mean, once you start opening the, the topography up to looking at insect habitat and breeding space for invertebrates, then of course you, you then you can then dictate what invertebrates you'd like to bring in. You know, what sand of what solitary bees like, for instance. You know, mm. and then we're finding out now what particular sands that, that what particular bees like, um, and uh, and what sort of rubble size, for instance. We're just finding we're getting bumblebee nesting in in large pieces of rubble now. So if we pile loads of big piles of rubble, if they're big pieces of rubble, well, there's loads of voids in there, and, and bumblebees are starting to nest in there now. So that, that, that I mean, you know, amazing and and sh and uh, crushed, pure crushed brick and concrete, for instance, you can create shingle in effect. So yeah. you've got like an urban dungeness going on. <laughs> Because the plants don't care. The plants don't seem to care whether it's a, a beach pebble or whether it's a, a smashed up piece of concrete and brick. You know what I mean? So there's all those kind of possibilities. So it's quite interesting. So going going back a um, going back a couple of steps. So um, I think what I got from the first your first part of your answer is you know perhaps as architects, uh, perhaps as landscape architects, that we need to begin to just think about our substrates in a different way and perhaps. The go-to, you know, the go-to specification is BS 58 you know, the, the BS down there for for yeah. your, you know, your sandy loam tops or done, put it in specific specification, done. But I guess the message you're trying to put across is perhaps in certain areas, perhaps for food production, perhaps under you know lawns or whatever, make yeah, specify that. But let's just not go for, let's let's just not go for the default. Uh, soils and be thinking about the substrate in a lot of different ways yeah i mean i'm not suggesting in any way that we take you know we, we suddenly go into a garden take all the topsoil away and, and and change it i mean what, what i'm very interested in is the places where the topsoil is being removed yeah. so highways developments i mean all these places where topsoil is routinely scraped off before work starts and in fact a lot of domestic big landscape projects are similar similarly yeah. um when that happens, you've already taken the tops off and you've put it in a corner somewhere. Then it's just, uh, uh, what I'm suggesting is it, think maybe where that topsoil is best used. So it's definitely best used in growing food. You might want to, you might have a huge maintenance budget and want an incredible herbaceous border. Well, great, you know, use your topsoil there. Yeah, yeah. But um, you don't have to use it everywhere. And certainly in public space on, on low maintenance budgets, which is what most of the landscape is, um, as soon as you introduce nutrient, as soon as your, in, your nutrient level goes up, as soon as your organic content of the soil goes up, your maintenance goes up. 
yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Unless you, you know, unless you cover it in, in fabric and bark and all those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I guess I'm just, as the process, these things, the process of taking the soil has already been done. You've got massive machinery often on site on a lot of these projects. It's great to think about where that stuff is best used because topsoil is an incredibly precious thing and we don't really need it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and if you, and, and, and in fact, of course, and, and you could then create incredibly diverse uh, landscapes by not using it everywhere. And because you're mixing up, again, you're mixing up the substrates on you, you're given a, a choice. And the other, I, I think the other crucial thing, not only the maintenance, but because you're using mineral soils or construction waste, you, you can then direct sow into this stuff because there, there's no, uh, there's no uh, weed bank in the soil. So mm-hmm. as soon as you take away the topsoil, you're taking away the, 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 the seed um, base and therefore direct sowing into this stuff. And I've, you know, been doing it for many years here it is, I mean, apart from wind blown, few wind blown weed seeds, there's yeah. no weed seeds in this stuff. So you can direct sow and you know pretty much 90% of what's coming up is what you've sown. Now that is a massive advantage, you know, because to prep topsoil, to get it in that state, as you know, probably <laughs> as any landscaper would know, and any person who's trying to create wildflower meadows or whatever they're trying to do, to, to, to get the soils in, in a state good enough to direct sow is quite hard, quite yeah. difficult. Yeah. And of course, weeds are not stupid enough to all germinate at one time, again, as we know. So even if you think you've got your soil weed free, in the spring, another batch of weeds will come up. So I, I think the maintenance levels reduce. Um, you can direct sow, which means it's the cheapest form of landscape, isn't it? You're never going to get a, a create a, a landscape any cheaper than direct sowing. Um, and your ongoing maintenance obviously reduces because if the weeds, the weed seeds come in, obviously, it doesn't mean they don't come in. It just means you have longer to pull them out. You know yeah. what I mean? They grow slower. So you have more chance to pull them out. And, and the, the, the mixture of, of uh, weeds that you're dealing with is, is much, more, much narrower, you know, mm-hmm. in comparison to when you're dealing with the topsoil. Uh, Interesting. So, so th- th- there is a, there's a lot of advantage. With that, that's without the fact that if you introduce lower nutrient soils, you generally are going to get a more diverse plant community on the whole. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, it's just a fascinating subject. And I think maybe because I've come through, I haven't had any training in horticulture or landscape or anything else to do with our industry. Maybe that, that means you can be slightly more, you know, you can think, well, maybe we don't have to use topsoil. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know what the British standard for topsoil is. I, I think it's a massive advantage. You haven't been indoctrinated by, by some sort of college or university that you must do <laughs> well, you must do it that way. I think it's the best. That's the way, that's, that's, that's a massive advantage, I reckon. Well, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I, now, I, you know, I'm doing more talks and I'm, I'm meeting lots more people. I, you realise, you know, that, that kind of lack of base knowledge and especially with, with uh, plant names and a lot of other stuff that, that I would have had with basic horticultural training. It is a bit annoying not to have that. But, yeah. you know, it is what it is now. But so, but going back, so we were talking about the substrates, and then you, um, we got onto the briefly got onto the subject of you talked about bumblebees, you talked about solitary bees. Um, let's dive into that a bit more because again, I think 
perhaps for perhaps the uninitiated when we think about wildlife people just think about hmm, think about honeybees uh yeah. the thing about butterflies um but let's dive into that a bit more because you've talked about the substrates and how again the the biodiversity of the uh, the plants is increased but you were just touching on earlier about you know how many different uh, invertebrates um that are also interact with this substrate yeah, I mean, certainly if we're going to talk about solitary bees, for instance, I mean, there's a few amazing facts about solitary bees in contrast to honeybees. I mean, I guess everyone thinks of a bee, they think often of a honeybee, which is in effect is a farmed thing. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, um, and it has its place, I guess. Um, but um, solitary bees are just, our, they are our native bees. There's 250 species of them. And what I like about them, what's amazing about them, is how efficient they are at pollinating our flowers. So honeybees are efficient at packing pollen onto their hind legs to mm. take it back to the hive, which is great. This is what they need to do, right? But that means that less pollen gets dumped on the next flower. Whereas solitary bees, for, for one reason or another, I don't know, evolutionary wise, they're just incredibly messy. So they <laughs> fall into one flower and stuff, the pollen gets all over them and then they just blunder into the next one. And, and, and so, they're, they're up to 200 times more efficient at pollinating flowers than honeybees. So that's an incredible figure. Uh, and and, and, and uh, we, we kind of lose sight of that. And because they're solitary, obviously, people don't notice them. I didn't notice them 20 years ago, mm. for sure. Um, so they're not so glamorous. They're not so, so, they don't give us anything, right? I mean, mankind as it is, you know, we love things that we get stuff back from, don't we? So yeah, <laughs> these yeah, things yeah. fly around fly thousands of miles and then we take all their good stuff and give them a bit of sugary stuff you know i mean <laughs> fine but you know what i mean so uh so 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 solitary bees are amazing and but, but the thing is with solitary bees is there's a big proportion of them they have to they won't fly miles from where they breed right and they're very short distances so in you know you can have as much pollen and nectar as you want in your garden unless you've got a breeding space you will not get that solitary bee that's why there's no solitary bees in the middle of arable fields even even if there's a bit of rape out there and there's food out in the middle of the field they're too far from their breeding space yeah so it seems to me that most urban and and, and most urban and suburban um areas are pretty good now are getting better for, for pollen and nectar yeah i'd say um what they're missing is somewhere to breed so, you know, that's what's, I think that's what's actually the, uh, the restricted thing at the moment is, is, is the breeding space. So, so you've got two things. You've got your whole nesting bees, your aerial nesters, and your ground nesters and solitary bees. And we all know about the whole nesters because you can buy bee hotels and you can drill holes in wood, which we obviously do. Um, and that's great. Um, but to get you, the ground nesting bees, which is, which is the, the large proportion of solitary bees, you've got to have somewhere for them to, to nest. In. And they generally, this is not all, but they generally like warm, sheltered, sandy um, substrates. Now, um, and they generally like it to be fairly sparsely vegetated, this substrate. So they're relatively fussy. You know, that's why you tend to see them down the, the sides of paths often where we've trod the path and kept the vegetation back, you often get solitary bees there. Um, so the, the whole idea of substrates and, and where we are here, we're on heavy clay where we, where we live. Um, so we, we had very, very few ground nesting bees because um, there's a few that like that were nesting heavy clay, but not very many. Hmm. Um, 
Now, as soon as we started dumping sand here, bearing in mind we're a mile from the sandy soil here. Uh, yeah. As soon as we started dumping sand, within months, solitary bees that we'd never seen before were, nest, were nesting. You know? So we would, no matter how many flowers we'd have grown, we'd have never got those unless we'd have provided them the green space. So again, that, that's another reason to look at substrates. So sub, substrates then, that's another dimension to soils and substrates. What breeds in them? What's happy in them? Hmm. and you can pull in i think we're up to about 15 or 16 bee species now solitary bee species that have come in on the back of us dumping bits of sand here that we didn't have before so um, you so you use, use the collective there you said we so um correct me if i'm wrong you've been working with the entomologist it's james isn't it yeah james mcgill yeah we have who's a like uh, if ever anything happened that's it's changed the way we think about stuff and uh, made a massive difference since meeting James. He is just the the, the 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 amazingly mad and most wonderful entomologist. I mean, just just fantastic. And he just opened everything up. So we were sort of I was bluffing my way through, saying, "Oh yeah, I'm sure this is all good for biodiversity." You know, we've done this. I'm sure I've seen more bugs. And I didn't really know. Of course, this is the thing. I didn't really know. Um, so as soon as James came along, we then realized where, you know, he surveyed the whole garden and we realized that the, 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 uh, the brown field bits and the sandy bits and considering how new they are, they were actually the most biodiverse parts of my garden, even though we've got old bits of meadow and ponds and various other things. Yeah. So that was a kind of, you know, just a, it, was, it, was, it was what we thought but we weren't sure uh, and uh, and the other wonderful thing about working with entomologists and this is some, something I think that from a landscape architect um, or a designer's point of view if you get hold of an entomologist you can start to you can start to look at what what invertebrates there isn't in the land that you haven't got in the landscape or what invertebrates you want to get in the landscape and he will tell you what they love and then it's your job then like and you leave, James leaves it with me. He tells me what they like, and then we think how we can bring that structure or landscape into the garden. Mm. And then James comes back to see if we've been any good at it. And uh, that's a fascinating process. And 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 if you can get that, if you can start pushing up the levels of your invertebrates in your landscape, everything else pretty much follows on from that. So all your glamorous stuff kind of comes in on the back of invertebrates. So invertebrate sort of diversity and biomass is incredibly good way of, of, of understanding how, how good your, your uh, landscape is for biodiversity. Because uh, I, I feel that, you know, front and centre, you know, uh, landscape architects, designers, you know, can be, you know, can be the main lead, but it's almost get people, we need to get out of our, and I excuse the phrase, because I've heard this a thousand times, get out of our silos. So designers need to be talking to entomologists, needs to be, need to be talking to hydrologists, you know, we can't just be in our little silos. No. And you know, you know, the entomologist sh perhaps should be right there, front and centre, dictating—not well, dictating, but advising on how we can truly design gardens, landscapes, developments to actually have a, like a, a dare I say, a meaningful, quantifiable sort of um, you know sort of net gain more than anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. And of course, what it's it's quite bizarre that we've gone on for so long with with all these. Uh, you know, ecologists, I mean, to be a good ecologist, you've got to have, I'd say, you've got to have some understanding of horticulture and landscape. Mm. I would have said, if you're going to recommend, you know, what, where, the, where things need to go, or you're going to recommend mitigation. 
And if you're going to be a good uh, horticulturist and, and designer, then you need to have a bit of ecology for sure. So there, there's a there's a definitely a, a crossover. And I mean, it's starting to happen now in in some high end horticulture. I mean, all the big big names in horticulture. I mean, Fergus Garrett, Beth Chatto, all those sort of people now are looking at the ecology and the biodiversity of of their spaces, mm. and they're realizing. I mean, Fergus has, has been. Uh, uh, lucky enough to have a, a complete survey over the last three years or so and uh you know i mean it's incredible the biodiversity at dixter uh, and that's because uh, this is my guess anyway that obviously he's got a massive food source because he has to make the stuff look incredible there has to be there has to be flowers running from february to december or whatever <laughs> Um, so he's got a food source beyond belief. And then of course the Dixter, he's got that incredible, um, mixture of, of structure, old buildings, old walls, steps, yeah. woodlands, I mean, bits of med. I mean, he's just got that wonderful, wonderful hedges. I mean, it's so the combination of, of high end horticulture food source, which is massive, obviously, I mean, uh, I can't imagine invertebrates can eat, you know, there's always going to be more food than they're ever going to want. Yeah. Or, but the, what he's done is obviously he's 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 looked at Dixter and he and he's he's just sort of I don't know what he's done. He's probably just sort of roughened the edges slightly and and given those places that are just um, given a given a chance for stuff. Um, and and he's got obviously an advantage in some respects of having old buildings, lovely old walls, and things like that. Mm. So and he's nurtured that. And I think. I, I'm guessing, and you know, and, and talking to Fergus um, a few times uh, earlier in the year, and and I'm guessing it's it, it's giving him a, a real buzz now. It, on the back of horticulture. It just it, it kind of just opens up horticulture then. You know? mm. Amazing. Yeah. So I think there's a you know I think there's there's drivers from all sorts of parts of our industry now, and there's drivers from and, and Beth Chatter the same. I mean they're looking at, at lots of. Um, uh, ecological sort of um, twist to their garden now and, and looking how they can move things into that um, area a bit more uh, which is great um, so you've got you've got pressure or not pressure but enthusiasm coming from that end of horticulture mm. uh, and I think you, you've got um, what we're trying to do now though is to try and seems to me the the, the big stuff I mean if we you know what we're doing and, and bits of landscape and we're sort of pissing in the wind on, in, the, in, the, in the scale of the things we're doing. Yeah. We've got to change highways and we've got to change what happens on massive public yeah, infrastructure projects. And we've got to change what happens around the edge of farmers' fields, haven't we? Really, if, we've got, if we're going to do anything. And, and, and what's been really interesting, because we've been sort of campaigning for, for a, uh, we've got a road widening scheme on our A13 road. And uh, I didn't know anything about the procedure of, of how 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 highways work, um, but it's really amazing when you start to find out about the systems that make these things happen and how they happen. You realise this is some of it is slightly mad, slightly mad. <laughs> do you want to do you want to sort of as a bit of a as a bit of a um, as a bit of a case study? Do you want to just give give us a bit of a, a background on the A13 because it seemed like a it seemed like an absolutely massive opportunity lost. To, to create miles and miles and miles of habitat. Yeah, well, it, it turns out, this is what we've, since I've been uh, looking at it, um, I mean, it, basically the road is what it's been widened. So it's gone from two lanes to three lanes each way. So they've pushed the embankment back. So they, they basically, 
all the embankment and all the scrub and the trees that were on there have obviously been just trashed and taken away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they just moved the embankments back and then scraped the embankments back to a gradient and exposed, they pushed, took all the topsoil away first, put that in a big heap, and then they exposed this beautiful sandbag. Um, but the, the, but um, the first thing that, that uh, we found out is that um, there's an awful lot of money and time spent by ecologists and I guess because of law and because of legislation, they have to survey what they're going to trash a lot, right? So you, you have to spend lots of money to find out what you're going to destroy. Now, okay, there's, a, there's an argument to that. But to be honest, the bit of mitigation work, you know, catching some newts, moving them to somewhere normally not very suitable and doing all that stuff, that, I don't know. Is that the best place to be spending money, right? So there's tons of money goes on that. Then when they come to... Recreate, uh, you know, design the new landscape. Bearing in mind, this is the probably the biggest piece of new landscape in in the borough. Now, this this piece of land. Um, it turns out that really it's planners and engineers that design the new landscape, pretty much. Mm. Um, and they they will grade they will grade the embankments to a certain gradient. They will put the same amount of topsoil and they will plant in the trees and shrubs generally. Um, because that's always been okay from an engineering point of view, that seems to be the way that it carries on. And of course, it's, it's smoothed and raked absolutely pancake flat. Yeah. So it feels really mad to me. And there's no ecologist virtually involved in the design of the new landscape, a massive, massive landscape. Mm. Uh, it just seems really completely the wrong way around. I, I mean, it feels to me like, how much money do you want to spend on a landscape that you are totally destroying? I mean, okay. You can move some newts if you want, but to be honest, the whole of this part of Essex is covered in great interesting newts, to be honest. Anyway, that's an aside, but you can move some stuff. And if there's dormice, lovely, move some dormice. But you know, it, it's quite difficult to move stuff. It's very difficult usually to find a place that's as good usually as the habitat you're destroying. Mm. So let's spend more money on designing the new landscape to be good. And if mm. we get the new landscape to be good, then it can become incredibly important to wildlife and more biodiverse than the original landscape, I'd say, really quickly, if you do it right. And um, I know there's been a few schemes, like um, Phil Sterling, for instance, is a great guy, and he's, uh, he's campaigned down in Dorset, and he managed to get the Weymouth Relief Road. He managed to stop and put in topsoil back on the chalk there. And lo and behold, that whole embankment now is covered in orchids and 20 odd butterfly species. I don't know. It's become an amazing place in 10 years yeah, yeah, yeah. and saved them some money. Anyway, now I know there's engineering issues and I understand that, you know, we've got to, but we, we should at least be talking about what the new landscape should be like, because mm. that is, that's the real potential for biodiversity. Where are we going to increase? How are we going to increase biodiversity? We're not going to increase it in old nature reserves, particularly. Okay, we can look after them and keep them the same, and they might keep the biodiversity up. The only place we're going to increase, really have a chance to increase in biodiversity generally is in new landscapes, and, and, and especially big new landscapes. Yeah. Uh, because we've got the machinery on site, we've got all the massive amount of machinery, and there's a huge budget usually. So to move things around and, and create an interesting uh, variety of topography and substrates would be so easy and so cheap. But it never happens, pretty much. Um, so I think we really underplay the potential of new landscape for biodiversity. We really do. I think we're, we're still a little bit in that set of 
you know, we've always been brilliant in this country at preserving things and looking after nature reserves. And there's a great volunteer force that does that. And that is obviously incredibly important. But we really underestimate how good a landscape can be very quickly if it's designed correctly. I mean, you, you, you take the Barnes Wetland Centre, for instance. You know, I mean, it was a deep-sided reservoir, pretty much. And we've just we've made it smoother. We've, we've increased the diversity of the topography, in effect. Now it's an, it's an incredibly important site. How quickly did that happen? We've got Canvey Wick down on um, Canvey Island here, um, the third most important site for, for invertebrates in the country, in the country. And that includes all your triple SI sites and your ancient woodlands and God knows what else. That's been left about 40 or 50 years, just left an industrial site. Mm. Now, I mean, you know, there's, there's tons of gravel pits, chalk pits, where are all the, where's all the triple SIs on places like that, aren't they? You know, so I, I, I just think there is the potential to really make places amazing, to make new places amazing, there really is. And I think, you know, I think we really need to start valuing that and we really need to every piece of new landscape, if we can do our best to design that in a way that's gonna, you know, it's gonna perform for biodiversity and for people, obviously, you know, and for people. You, you know, there's a good aesthetic as well. So, so with um, a part of that, um, part of that, John, uh, you know, new new landscapes or parts of new landscapes is green roofs. Now, um, it's quite interesting. Me, um, a couple of episodes ago, me and Gary Grant were putting the worlds to rights on uh, green roofs. But a lot of work you've done with we've talked about substrates, but a lot of work you've done with substrates and and green roofs is you really can have a um, you know, quite an impact on biodiversity with, you know, with, um, with green roofs, um, because perhaps to some people, green roofs are just a bit of sedum, job done, box ticked. But do you want to expand, do you want to expand yeah. what you, you've been doing with green roofs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, I think the big thing about green roofs for me, and this is what's increasingly, I'm, I'm beginning to think, is that they're not, in the southeast of England, they're, um, they're not just a place to think about in interest in plant communities because it's quite difficult in this corner of England and virtually every year, most of our native plants that are on green roofs are gonna get, at some stage they're gonna get burnt off. You know, it's an incredibly hostile environment. So I think we know, we know, there's two things I think we should be looking at green roofs. I think we should be looking at structure on green roofs. So we should be looking at breeding space. So we, we all our new roofs now, we're putting sand mounds on for ground nesting bees, we're putting log piles on, we're putting pieces of liner that create temporary pieces of ephemeral little ponds on. I mm. think roofs are really useful places to create structure and breeding space that would be very difficult to do on the ground, especially in an urban place because the disturbance would be too much or the cats or whatever they'd be. So I think roofs are, I think we're missing a trick if we don't look at roofs as very much more of a structural and a breeding space and not necessarily put all the emphasis on the plant space because it's very difficult to, and unless you've got more rainfall than we have in this corner, it's quite hard to produce a continuous nectar and pollen source on a green roof. At some stage in the southeast, they will be brown yeah. unless you irrigate them. Um, and then the other thing I think we should look at is alongside the native um, plants on roofs, which you know there's quite a few that perform pretty well, we should be looking at some plants that make sense from a climate change point of view as well, and some plants that will tolerate that level of stress because it is incredibly stressful. 
it's not just the drought, I think it's the, it's the temperature of the soil. There's no subsoil underneath the green roof. So I think the temperature of the soil has a big effect as well. Um, so we should be looking at some plants that can really hack it in those conditions, which could, which would probably be some, I mean, there's loads of amazing Mediterranean plants. Turkish species we've been looking at and trialing here, um, some Californian stuff. Um, I think we should be mixing in some climate change stuff and some plants that are gonna perform on a green roof amongst the natives. You know, I, I really think, you know, most of these roofs that go in in urban spaces, they're not next to a triple SI site, are they? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and if we want to keep, if we want to keep the nectar source going, we've got to have a plants that are not going to burn off completely when this, when this heat comes. Um, so I think that's a really interesting place is looking at the potential subshrubs, for instance, there's some really interesting subshrubs from the Mediterranean areas that, um, that, that would work well. So, I think we just need to open our mind up to not just be focused on the plants. I think we should look at the structure and the potential of that space to create wetland or to create rubble piles or log piles or sand piles would be. I think it's a great place to try that stuff. So just going, so a couple of things that spring to mind that, um, you know, this has been achieved quite well. Uh, so there's a, a green roof that was, um, uh, designed by Dusty uh, Dusty Gedge and Gary Grant on the top of the David Attenborough building in Cambridge, where I lived, where you've got yep. some habitat up there. But yep. perhaps for any engineer um, sort, of, sort of listening to this, in terms of the structure underneath a green roof, you, you don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't have to have a super reinforced um, roof structure to support a lot of these green roofs. Because in terms of perhaps the extra investment, it's not a massive engineering feat to to support some of these green roofs you, you've been talking about. No, I mean I, I think that the the big thing about green roofs, the usual thing is that people ring us up, and this happens a lot. They ring up and say, "Oh, I've got this. I've, I've, we've built the building. It's a green roof. I want to create this beautifully thick meadowy style roof, and I want to do this, and I want to do that." And then you say to them, "Well, what loading did you design the roof for?" And it's mm -hmm. it's always too low. So the big thing about green roofs is, is to talk about what sort of roof you want to create early days on a building. And then you can design in the structure to support that easily. I mean, mm. to go from, for instance, on the small scale we do, I know it's, you know, it's, some, it's different on huge buildings, but not much more different. I mean, we, if we're building a green roof and we want to put four inches of soil or we want to put eight inches of soil, we just have to jump from a, probably from a five by two to a seven by two joist. That's, that's usually the only flip, right? Now that is the same labor cost. It's the same screws and nails. It's just the material cost, which is tiny. So if, if you can just think about your roof right from the start and try and design in as much loading as you can, that's, that's within your, you know, is reasonable. The more loading you can give your green roof, the more flexible you can be, the more kind of extravagant and, and interesting you can be about the design of your roof then. Do you know what I mean? If you just give yourself a bit of leeway, but as soon as you skimp on the structure, you're then gonna restrict it. Um, and uh, I think it feels to me like, you know, 150 mil of substrate would be a great sort of yardstick to go to as a, as a, as a base. Um, you know, if you, if you can design the roof to 150 mil, which is about 220 kilos a square meter, yeah. um, then, and that's pretty easy to do if you're designing the building from scratch. Uh, if you can do that, then you have got chance to do all the things we've been talking about. Do you know what I mean? You've got chance to put rubble up there. You've got chance to put a sand mine mound. You've got chance to create 
hold on a nectar source for much longer because the plants won't dry out so quick. You've got, it just opens up all sorts of possibilities. As soon mm. as you kind of restrict yourself with a tiny amount of soil, you're limiting yourself again. And, you, and potentially also you're ticking uh, quite a few biodiversity net gain uh, points as well with, with, the, uh, with the green roofs. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I guess you would. I mean, they basically do everything, don't they? I mean, I always like to think of it, first of all, they make your roof lining last longer. Right? That's the biggest thing. That's one of the big things for me. So if you chuck a load of soil on top of your flexible rubber liner, it's going to last longer than if you left it in full sun going from 120 degrees to minus 10 in the window. Right? Yeah. So that's the first thing to remember. They do, green roofs make roofs last longer. They don't make them last a short amount of time. And there's better insulation as well, though, isn't there? So after installation, there is there is notable um, cost savings on heating of buildings. Is that correct? I guess the biggest cost savings, I'd say, for sure, would be on cooling the building, which yeah. is more relevant now as time's going on. So, so if you, I mean, it, it, it's all it's all common sense, isn't it? If you imagine, you know, going in an old, like an old Anderson shelter where they used to just chuck the soil over the top, and you go in there on a hot day, it is cool, obviously. Yeah. So. That, that, that's going to, soil on a roof is going to make it much cooler and it is going to make it warmer. The problem with the green roof is that the insulation value varies depending on how much water is in the roof. So if it's saturated, the insulation value is, is lower. If it's nice and dry and open and got lots of air, it's going to be higher. And I think they've had a job to actually fix a figure for insulation value for a green roof, but it obviously does insulate. Yeah. Um, but it most definitely cools. And I know there's been a lot of research done with air conditioning costs um, and green roofs. And that would, it makes perfect sense. And, and of course, the other big thing it does, the other lovely thing it does, is that it, it, when you get a heavy um, downpour, you know, most of the time in the summer, the water, no water comes off because it just gets soaked up in the, in the substrate. But even if it gets to that tipping point, the water coming off, stuff comes off nice and slowly and over a long period, you know what I mean? So, yeah. So your, your engineering for your drainage and everything else doesn't have to have this one in 50 year massive flood where every piece of water on tiled roofs comes off within seconds. Uh, that's the, the, the lovely thing about absorbent roofs, absorbent mm. landscapes, isn't it? You know, that stuff goes, stuff's just slowed up, you know, and uh, it takes its time. I mean, when it rains heavy on this roof, on my house that I'm sitting in now, um, you know, it can be running down the chains downpipes at the back for two three hours after it stopped you know where the water is just gradually filtering through and gradually coming off that's what you want as a as a as a as a, as a, as a drainage engineer that's what you want mm. then you don't have to have drains the size of double decker buses do you to deal with a one in 50 flood 50 year flood you know i mean uh, it, it, it is common sense isn't it? really i guess it is, but engineers like those big, uh, like those, uh, perhaps it's, <laughs> it's easier to perhaps get their head around, um, you know, thinking about pipe bore and, you know, and gradients rather than fluffy green roofs. But, 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 but we, I mean, but, um, you know, as, as part of your sort of suds train, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's it's going to be vitally important. We're, we're getting these weather events more and more and more, and I can only I can only personally see them accelerating. Yeah. Um, so you know, that one in fifty yeah. storm is yeah. going to be one in 
funny store. Yeah, and of course, the stronger you make your roof, the more substrate you put on your roof, the more absorbent your roof's going to be. That's the other thing. If you've got a little thin, pissy bit of sedum up there, you know, the water's going to be coming off much quicker, yeah. much quicker. So if you've got 150 mil of absorbent soil, it's going to be coming off a lot slower. Um, so that's another advantage. And of course, the longer you keep the moisture in the, in the soil on the roof, the more uh, evaporation and the more cooling effect that the roof has from, a, from an urban heat island point of view as well. So the thicker the soil, you know, the, 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 the more evaporation, the longer the evaporation, so the more the cooling. I mean, you know, if you imagine, you know, a, a, a thin bit of uh, sedum with a thin bit of substrate on, it's going to dry out within a very short space of time. And then it's not going to be evaporating in the same way. So, so there's a, it's basically got, a, you know, soil and plants on a roof have got advantages all around. And if you can just create a bit more soil on a roof, you're going to increase those advantages. I think. Yeah, big time. So um, perhaps the last string of your bow, you mentioned it right at the beginning of the, um, of the uh, podcast is uh, the work you've done around social housing, because um, you know, I've watched from afar what you've been doing at um, Clapton Park. Um, do you want to just go into that because that's been a, it's been a fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, that's been a, uh, yeah, that's been a, a definitely has been. Like I said at the beginning, it's really been a it's, It is a privilege to look after public space, isn't it? You know, what I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, where do you get a chance to actually do something that that um, you know that that many people are going to see as a as a as a gardener? You know, um, and I think. That, the, the big thing about social housing, well, it, it wasn't even so much, it was social housing, but it was much more about uh, maintenance or, or, or caring for somewhere. And, and, and the value, we put so little value on actually looking after stuff. And let's be honest, we're all gardeners. Well, we're not all gardeners, but certainly we are, you are. And, and, and you know, gardening is caring, basically. That's what it's doing. And I think what's happened especially with the funding systems and the emphasis and whether all the money's gone, the money's always going on infrastructure. Yeah. So we could always, we could always get money for infrastructure on our estate. We could always get money to build stuff. Yeah. But could we get money from funders to actually pay local gardens to look after that space with the local community? No, we couldn't. Yeah. Very difficult. I think it's, can we need a, you know, I think our industry needs a, it needs to have, have a broader discussion, you know, because, um, you know, the schemes that we put in, you know, it sounds dramatic, but a lot of them just crash and burn. Yeah, of course they do. They crash and burn. And I say that, and I'm not, that crash, and, crash and burn is not my words. It was, it's, a, it's a phrase that James Hitchmo, Sheffield University used. Yeah. His, you know, if his schemes, yeah. crashing and burning, the man of, you know, is a yeah. top class, you know, yeah. Yeah. individual. It's, 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 it, it is, it is, I mean, it, it you know, it's just completely fundamental to everything is how you're going to look after it. And we, we, you know, when we've worked in schools, for instance, you know, we built loads of wildlife gardens, right? Now, that's great. Everyone comes out, parents come out, the teachers come out, we build the pond, do all the stuff, right? And then maybe a year, year and a half later, there's a guy on eight pound an hour with a strimmer looking after that space. I mean, I, that's not, I know that's an extreme example, and you do get lucky. Sometimes you get a parent that's really good and will go and, but there is no money spent, no emphasis spent on caring. You know, we, like on, I always used to think in, in, on the estate, we don't need probably another pergola. We don't really need a, a, the, the, the residents. I, I can say with certain amount of um, 
certainty, certainly, that uh, they would rather see gardeners caring, hand weeding, looking after space, chatting to, to, to the people that they're, they're, the people that are living there. That is where the value for money is, you know, mm. just coming in and paving an, an area over or spend, you know, you could spend, you could, you could have a, a, an amazing, incredible local gardener working with the community, I don't know, one or two days a week throughout a whole summer for the price of how many, how many square feet and meters of paving, not very many. Right. And, and that is the best money, the best money spent. And it's so depressing to see all that effort and all that enthusiasm going into building a landscape and then it never gets looked after. And it, and it happens time and time and time again. So what we tried to do at Clapton Park is we thought, well, the only way we're probably going to make this uh, happen or make it continue to happen, I mean, obviously we tried our best to look after the place and we did do a lot of interesting stuff, but we're very keen. So we, the only way we knew it was going to continue is to try and change the contracts. It's a bit like the highways. We need to change the systems because yeah. unless we can change the contract, the next company that come in, I don't know, you know, they might be really, really good, but if they don't happen to have the enthusiasm and don't happen to want to spend the time with the community and, and have something in their guts about it, mm. it's not written in their contracts. So they, they don't do it. So we, we're lucky enough to be able to write the new contract uh, and the, the residents asked us to write the new contract. So we left in March, we finished in March and after 18 years and we wrote the new contract and um, it's, um, it's Idy Verdi now that are looking after the space. Um, and I'm, I, I haven't been back much because of what's been going on, but I'm really hoping that, you know, what, what we've started and what's in the contract is going to continue. Um, and I think the other thing people have got to get away from is every time you talk to someone, you know, like you talk to someone about um, gardening or anything and it's always, oh, well, it's got to be lower maintenance. Oh, yeah. you know, you're, you're looking after the, the social housing. Oh, you're doing wildflowers. Oh, does that mean you're saving money? No, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't mean we're spending very much more, but it does mean we're spending a little bit more. But that little bit more is giving like the, the wildflowers along the railings in, in you know, we, I don't know, say 200, 300 meters of wildflower edge. You know, it costs a bit of money to do that. Not much though. And the joy 300 meters of flowers give to people. Mm. I mean, it's not in, you can't do the, all this stuff on the cheap. Mm. And, and we need to somehow move the emphasis from always building things, always changing things and investing in people. And the other thing is if you invest in maintenance and caring, you invest directly into the pocket of the person that's working there pretty much within reason. So, you know, the money's going to, to it's going into labor, isn't it? It's going into to us working and caring for things. Mm. It's not going into manufacturing all the time. And uh, I don't know. I think, I think that that's a mindset change and, and it's going to be hard, but if we can do that, it, you know, it, people really do love seeing someone working and because and, and, if you if you've got a, a, a decent maintenance budget that allows you to hand weed that allows you to do the nice thing that allows you some time to talk to people right and that should be written into a bloody maintenance budget yeah. um, you know that, that that that's massive value and that's what people crave that yeah but at the moment most maintenance contracts don't allow you to take ear protection off Right, so most most maintenance contracts, you're cutting grass, you're trimming hedges, or you're spraying chemicals. 
you know, not, not all, and I know there's budgets for people, but the, the, the core of the maintenance contract is that. Well, you yeah. can't even hear anybody. And your job is pretty shit. If you've got that all that on and that's all you're doing, most people, you know, we're gardeners. We don't really want to trim hedges all day and cut grass all day. It's not really, you know, it's the other stuff that's the wonderful thing. It's the seed sowing and it's the flowers and it's, it's, mm. it's, it's the interaction with people. Uh, that's the joy of gardening, I would say, especially in public space. Um, but you're dead, you're dead right. Just changing that, you know, it's, it's, these are lovely things to say, but again, it's just, if you change yeah. a contract, incrementally you're going to change you know then it becomes you know the semi-norm it's not just 19 cuts 19 cuts per annum sprays rib but it's but it's quite interesting you're echoing um you are echoing um uh, quite a few other um, quite a few other people that i spoke to um went to a conference last year where um there's a an american designer called thomas rayner and he was saying yeah I'm no, saying similar yeah. things, you know, said so we have to, you know, we have to, you know, spend 75% of the budget, but keep 25% budget. So at least we can yeah. be involved with the landscape for two, three, four years. So at least yeah. you've got some sort of guidance. It's got some sort of guidance. So it's yeah. got a fighting chance of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in social housing, even more important. You know, they, these, are, these, are, these, are, these are generally often poorer areas. They're, they're often... You know, they might not be near a big park, you know, so that the bits of green space around the houses, those forgotten pieces of green mm. space, they are so important. And, and they've been totally overlooked, really, in the, in the, the, the horticultural and the, and the, the bigger green space agenda, really. It's always, always been about parks. And um, those little bits of green space outside where people live, that's what they walk outside and pass every single day, you know, and small tweaks to the way you look after them changes things you know i mean we 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 uh, made food as food uh, as, as a default planting for the last six seven years we we only use food plants any new planting we did unless there was a really good reason not to yeah and that was another lovely little shift and you know on the back of all the allotments that we'd created we then we then shifted to the public space and and and, and made sure that uh, everything we did had a basis in in food because people really noticed that and they notice a green space that's got an apple tree in it or a red currant or a medlar. They really notice it. And, um, and of course, they can pick the bloody stuff mm. because it's theirs, you know, it's in their public space. And, um, and there's a massive disconnect, I think, between the people living and, 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 and they don't associate this green space around them as being theirs <clears throat> and haven't done for many years. So it takes a while for people to get, it took us a while for people to understand they could take the stuff. <laughs> so people were frightened people thought you shouldn't do it you know and it's like people thought they shouldn't pick flowers you know all the all the flowers we grew along the railings people said oh no you don't they used to hit their kids don't pick them <laughs> and uh, we used to go no 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 please pick the flowers pick the flowers because that's that i mean again the other advantage of direct sowing is the cheapness and the and the quantity of flowers you produce yeah. there's plenty of flowers for everyone and you know so th th they are two joyous things to see people collecting food and picking flowers in public space aren't they you know what what a nicer thing would you want yeah too right so john we've been talking just for a little over an hour so i'm sure you've got to get on but john it's been uh, it's been lovely chatting with you um and you, Dan, and you mate um so where can people get hold of you uh you know socials uh websites where can they get hold of you john yeah i i guess uh 
Twitter and Instagram probably be the best place because they're them. It's much that's much more up to date than my website usually. So uh, that's uh, uh, at GrassRoofCo and GrassRoofCo. Um, those two t on Instagram or Twitter. That's the best place probably. Uh, uh, and uh, we do have a website of GrassRoofCompany.co.uk. Top man. Okay, John. Thanks a lot. Oh, nice time. to see you, Dan. Bye, mate. Yeah, bye, bye. Thank you.